So uh, I'm going to pray, but I want to introduce someone. Uh, his name is Logan Howard. Um, this young man has been attending this church since 2006 with his family. He's about five or six years old with a buzz cut, and uh, now he's, he's got more hair up on top there. Logan has served in many capacities in this church, uh, from the worship team uh, to the youth. And right now, if you, haven't, if you don't know, he is actually going to Boyce College studying um, a business. But hopefully, uh, by this time next year, he's going to be entering the Masters of Divinity at Southern Seminary. So um, he got, he's got uh, aspirations of being a, an elder, a pastor at a church, and so I, I commend him for that. Um, he's a member here at this church, but it's not enough to be a member here. He also has to be an associate member at Third Avenue uh, Baptist Church in Louisville. When he goes uh, to college, he wants to be plugged into church. And so we're thankful that God has raised up a young man like him. Let me pray, and we'll inter- have uh, Logan come up, read his portion of Titus, and uh, bring God's word to us. You just had to bring back the buzz cut, didn't you, Matt? <laughs> well, good morning. I, uh, as I look around the room this morning, I have a lot to be thankful for. Um, I'm thankful for my family that has come to church this morning to uh, hear me preach. I'm thankful for this church at large that I have grown up in for the majority of my life and where I've heard such um, amazing teaching and where my faith has just skyrocketed. Um, and uh, as we turn to Titus this morning, um, I just uh, go ahead. And, yeah, go ahead and turn to Titus right now. Titus 1. Um, I'm going to be preaching from verses uh, 8 and 9. So go ahead and turn there. Uh, most of you who know me know that I was homeschooled for the majority of my life. Um, and uh, as I grew up, like, into my, you know, age 10 to 12, I was, like, into video games and everything, and that was kind of my thing. But as I got older, I realized that perhaps video games weren't so important, which was shocking at the time. And uh, I went out and started looking uh, for jobs, and eventually I landed one uh, at McDonald's, where I was for four years. Now, I'm not someone who loves change. So when I started working at McDonald's and had to work with people every day that I didn't know and um, see customers and uh, deal with complaints that they may have had, it kind of uh, it, it was a little, it was a little startling to me. And uh, but one of the most startling aspects was getting used to uh, the management there and uh, the owners. Um, but eventually, I found my groove. I found out what they liked and what they didn't like. That is until a year and a half later when everything changed. Again, I don't like change. And so when, when management switched over, the, I had a lot of questions. Like, were, were they going to care for us like the other people did? Um, were they going to care about the business? Were, like, did we have job security? And it wasn't just me who had these concerns. It was me and my fellow coworkers. And I think the reason that this is the case was because of a principle that applies to everyone today in some capacity, and that principle is this. Leadership matters. 
I mean, just think about your own life. Think about like this last election. I mean, it was crazy with different opinions about who should be the next president because people had different opinions about like who the leadership should be because they thought that they would be the better president. Think about jobs, like I was just talking about. Um, it could be coaches for sports. It could be parents, camp counselors, etc. You, you, you know, you get my point. Leadership affects all of us in some way, and leadership is the topic in today's passage. So just to give you um, a little bit of a reminder of uh, what's happened so far, um, two weeks ago, uh, Matt preached on, uh, basically on the introduction of Titus, which basically says uh, who Paul was and who Titus was, um, and that this book, this whole book was written for the elect, um, which would be anyone who is a believer. Uh, last week, um, you sat under the preaching of Ed Trevsker, who preached um, verses 5 through 7 of the qualifications for elders, um, which talk about uh, there was the family qualifications and that they should be above reproach and that um, uh, what the things that they should not be. And today, we're going to talk about the things that uh, they should be. Um, so let's turn to Titus. I'm going to read uh, Titus 5 through 9 just for the sake of context, but we're going to be looking only today at verses 8 and 9. So follow along with me as I read. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And then here are today's verses. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Um, I want to give you a clear one-sentence main idea so that you're able to track with me throughout the sermon, because I'm going to be referring back to it as I go along. So the main idea is this, and if you're a note-taker, you might want to write this down. A biblically qualified elder has a love for people motivated by a love for God. A biblically qualified elder has a love for people motivated by love for God. An elder cannot correctly love someone without first uh, loving God. Because in loving God, you become like him and you love what he loves. And as we're going to see today, what he loves in creation more than anything is his people. Um, so I'm going to actually address this in two points, and it actually divides really neatly into verses 8 and 9. So point number one, um, it's a couple different ways an elder loves. Point number one is an elder loves by who he is, in other words, his personality. And point number two is an elder loves by what he does in his actions. Loving by who he is and loving by what he does. Now, if you're not um, someone who wants to become an elder or can't become an elder, please do not assume that this sermon does not apply to you. Think about um, when Paul wrote to, uh, to Ephesus or the Corinthians. He wrote to those churches about issues that they specifically were facing, but we still apply those principles to our lives today. And I think the same thing can be said about these qualifications for elders as well, because 
eight of the nine healthy marks of a healthy, of a healthy elder that I'm going to be talking about today are addressed to us in other portions of Scripture. And I'll, I'll talk about the one exception when we get there. But just know for now, there are important truths in here for me and for you. All right, let's get at it. Point number one. So this is the first six marks. Um, first of all, we have hospitality. So when I first, like hospitality for most of my life meant inviting someone over to your house and feeding them. That's kind of what I thought it was about. But as I did more studying here, the definition's actually much broader than that. Being hospitable to someone simply means to love them. And in a church context, that could be serving people or talking or counseling them and, um, or inviting them over. I mean, that is one instance of hospitality, but that is not all it means. Um, but it's, it gets interesting because this particular Greek translation isn't just simply like to love someone, but it's the lover of the stranger. So not just people that you know and people that you like, but literally anyone. And this was really important when, um, when Titus was on Crete. Because around Crete, there were traveling Christians who were just spreading the gospel to people, and they were pretty much homeless. And so they had to rely on uh, Christians to house them, and they needed to be willing not to just house people that they knew and welcome in people that they knew, but strangers. Um, And I think as we transition to today, um, there are also ways where we can love strangers, um, particularly in the church. Um, someone, so if you think about how a church grows, that, that, that um, first requires that someone new enters it. And so if someone new enters it and they don't feel welcomed and they don't feel loved, then they're probably not going to come back and the church will never grow. I mean, think about your own journey to becoming a member of the church you were at, that you're at right now. If you felt like that you didn't belong or that you weren't welcomed or that you didn't feel loved or cared for, would you have stayed? I mean, I wouldn't have. Um, so it's important that elders specifically are, um, are one of the first people to welcome strangers into, into their church and to make sure they're loved or cared for, even if they don't want to stay. It's showing God's love to God's people. Um, so I actually have um, an example of this of myself. So as Matt said, as Matt said I am uh, an associate member of a Third Avenue Baptist Church. And when I started going there, I met this guy uh, named Chris a couple weeks in. And uh, throughout the semester, we had several conversations. And, uh, but it was pretty like, not, I, not shallow, but it's, it's like we, we didn't get to know each other on a super deep level. But as I was winding down my first semester at Boyce um, in, in November, he invited me over to his house for Thanksgiving. He's like, I, I don't know what plans you have, but you're welcome at our house. And I remember, I don't know him very well, but he was willing to invite me over to his family's meal Thanksgiving uh, just by the love that he had for people. Then go to the next semester when COVID kicked everyone out of college and he was one of the first people to text me, not 24 hours after I, had, uh, I was notified that I had to leave. And he's like, hey, if you need a place to crash or if you need help, you're welcome here. And the crazy part is this guy wasn't even an elder. He was just someone who loved the, who loved the Lord, and that was clearly shown in the way that he loved his people. 
So how are we when it comes to introducing people, introducing ourselves to people in the church or inviting people in, into our own homes? Do we tend to avoid them and just hang around the people that we're comfortable with? Or do we go out of our way and introduce ourselves and show the love of Christ to them? I mean, hear the words, it's, because it's not, it's not really an option. I mean, listen to Matthew 22, 37 through 39. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor, not, not just your friend, but anyone around you. You are called to love them. So, how are we supposed to love strangers? Like, that, that is how we're supposed to love strangers. Okay, uh, second, lover of good. That's our second qualification. Now, at first, that kind of sounds obvious. Like, well, yeah, if, if you're going to be an elder, then you should love good things and not bad things. But if you take some time to think about it, what is good? I mean, that can be really ambiguous and really unclear. Um, I think in the Bible there are two different kinds of good. There is subjective good, and then there's objective good. So, first, subjective good. I love cheeseburgers. Cheeseburgers are great, and it's summertime, and there's a lot of them being made. But the thing about cheeseburgers is that different people like them cooked different ways. I prefer medium well, and then there's other people who prefer them like well done, basically black. Now, these people are wrong. <laughs> but nonetheless, I have my opinion, and they have their opinion. But it is only that. It is subjective. Objective good, on the other hand, is fact. And when we're talking about the things of Christianity, the only objective good is that which God loves and what glorifies God. That is the only objective good there is. So an elder, if he is to be a lover of good, this means that he is to love what God loves and hates what he hates. So now you might think, okay, well, that's helpful, but what does this have to do with loving people? What does loving good have to do with loving people? Well, think about creation. I mean, when God created the plants and the ocean and the creepy, creepy crawly things on the ground, he said that those things were good. But do you recall on the sixth day what he said? I want to read you that, um, that account on the sixth day of creation. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God sent to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
and there was evening, and there was, and there was morning the sixth day. So nothing was very good until creation happened. And the fact that we are created in the image of God shows his priority for us over all other creation that exists. So if elders are to love what is good, and they are to love what God loves, and what God loves more than any other creation is man, so should the case be with elders. They should love God's people more than anything else created in the world. So for the next four points, um, for the next four qualifications, uh, I'm going to talk about self-control and discipline side by side, even though in your text they're not next to each other. Um, and then upright and holiness, because those two groups of two kind of sound like each other, and it's going to be easier differ to uh, differentiate between them if I talk about them side by side. So self-control is consistently not, not doing something that you want to do, and discipline is consistently doing something regardless of whether or not you want to do it. So first of all, self-control. This also means to restrain yourself or to resist temptation. And we know this is important. I mean, it's one of the fruits of the spirits, uh, fruit of the spirits found in Galatians. Um, but what does it affect in the church? Well, in a word, it affects everything. I mean, especially regarding temptation. If you're a Christian, you know that this is a huge issue. And if you think about it, all sin starts out as temptation. You are not first, you, you don't sin until you are first tempted to sin. And any sin you commit, is, you commit is a result of being tempted to do that action first. Think about Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. So Eve was by the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and uh, the serpent came and said that if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. And because of that lie that was planted in her, she had this growing desire to be like God. And from that desire, she then took the fruit and she ate, and then she gave to Adam. He's like, oh, I want to be like God too. And so he ate, and out of, all of, and out of that, the entire world was cursed. Think about the story of Korah in Numbers 16. Um, I don't know if you know who he is, but he uh, was one of the Israelites in the wilderness where Moses and Aaron uh, were leading them. And... Uh, he got sick and tired of the kind of leadership they were in because they were in the wilderness for years. And so he had this idea to kind of form a mutiny and he got a lot more Israelites to come with him. And so eventually he uh, stood his ground and he's, and against Moses and Aaron. And because of that, number 1631 says that the earth literally opened up under Korah and the rebellious Israelites and swallowed them. And, it all, and all, that judgment on them started because of the desire to sin in one person. And this brings up another important point. When you sin, it never only affects you. It always affects those around you. And when you are an elder at the church, this is especially important. If an elder struggles with an addiction, it will affect the church. An elder who struggles with drunkenness is not going to be able to do anything in the church without thinking about when he can have his next drink. An elder who struggles with pornography is not going to be able to look at people the way that God wants them to, but, at the, but as the, the way that the world looks at them. An elder who struggles with anger is never going to have any tr fellow church member come up to him. 
because they have feared that he's going to lose their, his temper with them. An elder who struggles with laziness is not going to do whatever it takes to help someone, but whatever requires the least amount of work. And I could go on, but you see my point. Elders must be above reproach to lead a church. Um, if, and this is a, an important principle for all of us, because if we do not have a hold on our sin, it will have a hold on us. So now we know that we have to have self-control in elders, according to this passage in Titus. But how is that gained? Well, two steps. First we surrender, and then we fight. What do I mean by that? In surrendering, it's not surrendering to your sin, like, okay, I give up, you win. No, no, not at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's surrendering to Christ. And why do we surrender to Christ? Because... When he died on the cross, he took all of the sin of mankind, of those who believe in him, on his shoulders. So for those who believe in him and surrender their lives to him, they have a promised victory. Victory for the Christian has already been won because Christ died for them. And so if we surrender, we have won. However, we are still called to fight. That is because there is still a battle. The war has been won, but there is still a battle. And how do we fight? Well, that's our next qualification, discipline. Remember, discipline is doing something consistently regardless of whether or not you want to do it. In this text, it's, more referring, it's referring to uh, spiritual practices like reading your Bible, praying, meditating, um, evangelizing. See, these things help you fight sin and they bring you closer to the Lord as a Christian. We have to remember that as Christians, we are swimming in a river going against the current. If we stop swimming, then we're going to be carried back down. And the way that we keep swimming against it successfully is by, is by praying and getting close to the Lord. And by the way, this is only done by a means of grace. This is not something that we can do by ourselves, but it is only done because through Christ's death on the cross and us being found in him and God's mercy in our lives, that's how we're able to achieve this. But we need to, we, we need to draw close to God because God, the relationship between God and you is the most important relationship in your life because he alone saves he alone gives us the strength to fight sin. Now we'll discuss the two middle words, um, upright and holy. So in the Greek, both are actually forms of righteousness, but uprightness is righteousness towards mankind, and uh, holiness is righteousness towards God, and I'll take them in turn. So first of all, we have upright. This word also means just, which is pretty simple. I mean, be good to be just and fair to the people around you. And this uh, implies inside the church and outside the church um, for an elder. And I want to address them in turn. So first, inside. Elders are to treat uh, church members with respect no matter what because, as the scripture says, they are going to have to give an account for everyone that they oversee when they stand before the judgment throne of God. 
And actually, I mean, it applies to all of us in some capacity. We're all to love everyone equally. Otherwise, we fall into the sin of favoritism. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute because it's one of the more subtle but very powerful destroyers of church unity. Favoritism shows that we want something from a friendship. Maybe you have a popular friend and you just want to be on their good side and maybe you'll become popular for being friends with them. Maybe someone is, is rich or, and so then you can uh, maybe get money from them. It could be that shallow. There could be a whole list of reasons. But the bottom line, the bottom line is this. When we show favoritism, we expose the fact that we do not seek God's glory in friendship, but our own. Because think about it. With God's glory, it wouldn't matter who our friends were because we have, we're doing it for the same reason, to give, glory, to give glory to God and to follow his commandments by loving his people. So, just I want to present like just a little uh, mock case. So pretend there's, let's say there's an elder of the church and he hears that there are two people fighting and like they're shouting and name calling and all the rest. It, got, it, it gets pretty ugly. And so as an elder, he goes and stands between them, breaks up the fight, and he gives them each a chance to, to tell their side of the story. Now he hears each side and immediately he identifies the guilty person and the innocent person. But there's a problem. He favors the guilty person. He wants to stay on their good side. So he sides with him, or, that, or, or her, I don't know, uh, regardless of the fact that this person's in the wrong. I mean, you see the problem here, don't you? Their, their desire, this elder's desire for approval, takes priority over doing the godly thing. Do we have favoritism in our own hearts? I mean, how are we with our fellow members of the church? Are, are there certain people that we see and then we try to avoid because we just don't want to be with them? Do some, I mean, we should do some heart analysis, and if we discover that this is the case, we need to repent. All right, that's inside the church. But now we need to talk about outside the church. Does how an elder act out does how an elder act outside the church matter? Well, yes, of course. He is an elder all the time, not just in the confines of the church building. He has to be different from the world. Think about Titus when he was assigned to appoint elders in Crete. If the Christian Cretans acted like the worldly Cretans, how was he going to identify people that were worth leading the flock? They needed to be different. They needed to stick out. Such is the case today. If, we're, if we want people to be elders who act like the world, well then, I mean, then we have, a, we, you know, we can assign basically anyone to being an elder. But a biblically qualified elder is going to stick out, and you can see that just by reading uh, these qualifications. Because if you've noticed, these things are not what the world is. They are very different. And an elder cannot act like the world uh, when outside the church and only act like a Christian inside. They need to be different all the time. And this can be shown 
um, in a variety of ways. I mean, w- one thing our culture lacks today is forgiveness, especially of things that, of things that really hurt us. So if, if you, uh, so in forgiving people, especially people that have wronged you, that is one way to show the love of Christ and to stick out in the world. Um, it also, you can be, not, be partial to people like much of the world is. Be gentle and kind and slow to anger. All of these things are ways to be different from the world out in the world. We as Christians are called to be different. Finally, in this point, we have holy. Now, holy has a variety of meanings in the Bible. It can mean being separate from. It could, be, it could mean being found blameless. But neither of those is what this holy means. Holy in this context, context is, your, is your outside actions of being righteous towards God. It is the good works that you do. And elders are to show publicly and physically in their, in their life that they want to be holy by glorifying God more than anything. Now, I want to be clear. Good works like this, like being holy like this, is not what saves you. Faith in Jesus Christ alone and repenting from your sin is what saves you. But good works is proof that you have been saved. And so when an elder goes out into the world and lives a holy, an outward holy life for Christ, they are saying that no matter what this world throws at me or no matter what is going on in this world, I don't serve it. I serve my God. All right, that's point, that's point one. Point number two, an elder loves by what he does. Uh, verse 9. So first of all, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This is a key aspect of not just being an elder, but being a Christian in general. We have to hold firm to the, world, to the word, especially in a world that is becoming more and more wicked. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Princess Bride. And in that movie, uh, there's a scene where three guys capture a princess and uh, they travel by boat to escape uh, the, the, the city that she was grabbed from. But then they see that there's another guy on, on, on a boat a little ways back uh, chasing them. And so they travel for a little while, then finally they, they dock and they climb this cliff uh, on a rope. It's called the Cliffs of Insanity because they're literally like 1,000 or 2,000 feet high. Um, anyway, so they, they dock and they climb the rope and then uh, the other guy who's been chasing them docks and he starts climbing the rope. And when the three guys get to the top, they quickly cut the rope so that the guy that's climbing up and chasing them will fall. But before he, gets, before he falls, he jumps to the cliff and latches on for his dear life, knowing that he's going to fall if he does not hold firm. This is the kind of intensity with which we should hold firm to the word of God. Because if we are not holding firm, if we are distracted by the world and let things of the world take hold of us, then we are going to fall and we are going to fall hard. Here's another quick thought. 
it doesn't say, it doesn't say to, to hold firm to the word, but the trustworthy word. So the word is trustworthy. And why can we trust it? Because all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. So if we trust God, we can trust his word because God is the ultimate author of every word found in scripture. And by holding firm, there are two, uh, there are two other reasons Actually, sorry, there are two other reasons to hold firm, uh, which are the last two qualifications in this text. To teach and to rebuke. First of all, to teach, or as it's phrased in here, giving instruction and sound doctrine. Remember, I said there was one one qualification not meant for everyone. There was eight out of nine. Well, this is the one exception. This command to teach is given only to elders. However, This does not mean that we, as people who are not elders, should not hold firm because we're going to meet challenges in the world. People are going to ask us about our faith and we're going to to, uh, fall on hard times as Christians and we're going to need to hide the word of the Lord in our hearts when those things happen to us. We need encouragement, so we need to hold firm. So please do not take this to mean that this this is kind of our escape from holding firm because we still need to just for different reasons. Anyway, uh, back to the text. Um, So an elder needs to teach and before he can teach, he must hold firm to the word. Once he he holds firm to it and knows it, then he can teach it. Well, what is he to teach? Well, Titus 1.9 answers that as well. Sound doctrine. Now sound in this in, in the Greek, translates to healthy doctrine or hygienic doctrine. In Crete, there was a lot of false teaching, but one of the most dominant false teachings was Greek mythology. And there were all sorts of gods they served. In fact, Crete was like the main island in the world of that time where Greek mythology uh, was celebrated. Now, of the Greek gods, there was no greater god small g, God, than Zeus. Now, he's the god of thunder, the god of the sky. Um, but he had a few problems. I mean, this guy was, I mean, he was a womanizer, and he used his deity, and he flaunted it just to get whatever he wanted. And he was actually really immoral if you go back and did some research and read about what these people believed about him. But the problem is, the Cretans didn't only... Uh, just acknowledge this, but they celebrated it. I mean, they loved this, and it was sin. It goes directly against God, and they were completely blinded by Satan. And so elders were needed in that time to cut through that false doctrine and to show people the truth about Christ and about Christianity and about what they should worship instead of Greek mythological gods. And if you look at the world today, there's not a lot different. I mean, it's not Greek mythology, but we have our own lies that we believe in our culture. I mean, especially even in the church, think about the prosperity gospel, where if you believe in Christ and you get health and wealth and whatever you want, I mean, that's not even close to true. In fact, the Bible promises the exact opposite of that. It promises suffering and hard times and rocky roads and rough oceans. 
But people have taken this lie and they have celebrated it, deceiving themselves. Think about the gay rights community. I mean, that is like an up and rising thing right now. And the church is not, at large, the church is not just acknowledging it, but they are celebrating it and they are welcoming it in their congregations. The standard of marriage and love is changing in the church and it goes directly against what God has defined it as. So we today need biblically qualified elders in order to cut through that, to cut through the lies and to show them what the Bible actually says. So now we know that we need to teach sound doctrine, but what is sound doctrine? Well, I can't talk about all sound doctrine. We'd be here till next summer. But um, I can say this. All sound doctrine is found in the Bible. And the Bible, all of it, points to the gospel. Well, what's the gospel? Jesus Christ came and died for sinners. He came as a fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life before his Father in heaven. And his reward for that was being tortured and beaten and made, being made fun of and nailed to a cross and eventually killed on that cross. But on that cross, sin died with him. If you are a Christian today and you have repented of sin and you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, you are saved this morning. And if you're not saved, I will call you to do that to give your life to Christ, to surrender to him. But this is what sound doctrine, all of it, is rooted in, is this gospel. And so we need to have careful ears, and when we hear certain doctrines or things being taught, we need to ask ourselves and search our Bibles ourselves and get to know our Bibles and say and ask, does this go along with Scripture? Secondly, uh, so that was the first reason to hold fast. And our last qualification here and our second reason for holding fast is to rebuke. Now, to rebuke means to correct someone. An elder must hold firm and know the words so that when he hears lies, then he can be careful to show people the truth. Now, let me be clear. This is not to belittle them. People, elders should not go up to people thinking like, oh, I finally got them, yes, I can yell at them now and I can make fun of them. No, it's not like that at all. They should be doing this out of love for this person. They should have the mindset of, this person believes a lie and I want to show him the truth. I want to show him Christ. That should be the mindset as someone who loves God and loves his people. We must, and this raises another important point, we as a church should allow our elders to rebuke us because the fact of the matter is that we don't always get it right. We mess up, we fail because we're sinners. And if an elder, specifically at Grace Baptist Church, if an elder comes up to us, we can know that they do, they're doing it because they love, they love us. And we should value the fact that they're not going to tell us what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. So to close, I have two points of application 
First of all, praise God for the elders of Grace Baptist Church and for the upcoming elders. They love the Lord, and it is so, it is so, so clearly shown in the way that they love uh, people. They love us very much, and the Lord has blessed us with these men. Second point of application, pray for our elders. I mean, these nine marks of a healthy elder are ways to pray for them right now. Because the fact of the matter is, the battle of the spirit and the flesh is still waging. And elders are on the front lines as church leaders. But elders, be encouraged. Remember, Jesus has already won the war on sin by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, finally defeating its power. With this in mind, everyone, love God and love God's people until the day the Lord calls you home. Let's pray.